Grace and peace be with you from the crucified and risen Lord. Amen. Thirty years ago, a space probe known as Voyager 1 was making its way past the planet Pluto on its way out of our solar system. An astronomer named Carl Sagan persuaded NASA to rotate the craft so that it could look over its shoulder, as it were, the way you might do when you're leaving home for the last time for an unknown future. Sagan wanted a photograph of our home from four billion miles away. In the photo, the Earth appears as a near microscopic smudge in a darkened sky, much smaller than a grain of salt, one-tenth of one pixel among 700,000 pixels in the frame. Sagan called it the pale blue dot. In his poetic commentary on the photo, he wrote, all our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe is challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The pale blue dot is a place to begin to try to make sense of this really odd statement that St. Paul makes in his epistle lesson to the Corinthians this morning. He says, I am determined not to view anything from a human point of view. Like the scientist Sagan, he sees how big the creation is and how little we are and how foolish we appear when we claim to be the lords of the pale blue dot. When Paul says, I no longer look at things from a human point of view, we're tempted to reply, egad, man, what other point of view did you have in mind? I'm convinced this new perspective of his harkens back to an experience he had that transformed his life on the Damascus Road. You may remember he was traveling the Damascus Road on his way to bring Christians back from Damascus under arrest to Jerusalem. We don't know if Paul ever actually met or saw Jesus in the flesh, but he met him that afternoon. A blinding light came upon him, and the voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, I don't believe we've met. I'm Jesus, you know, the one you're persecuting. And that was enough to change Saul to Paul and to open his eyes in amazement. Now writing some years later, 
He is like a person who has had both cataracts removed. Perhaps you know someone who has had that operation or you've had it yourself. You know, there's a whole new world out there. This is what Paul sees. In Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, the Greek language has a perfectly good word for world, for planet Earth. But Paul chooses another word, cosmos, a kind of Carl Sagan-type word. Cosmos, which is nothing less than everything. Stars, planets, history, culture, time, space, you and me. Moreover, this thing he calls cosmos belongs together with something bigger than cosmos. That bigger something he calls God. When you have God and cosmos in the same picture, you have something beautiful. You have the big picture. This morning, just before church, I placed a tiny piece of tumbled blue glass on the altar. I wanted to symbolize for myself and for those of you in the back row just how small our home is and yet how precious. I placed it on the altar because it and we with it belong to a great and magnificent God. I wanted us somehow to get a feel for the big picture. Of course, there are times when the very last thing we want is the big picture. When you're in a meeting or a conference or in a discussion group, isn't there always somebody who says, and the, the conversation is getting rather heated, and someone says, let's pull back for a moment, let's pause and look at the big picture. And if you're anything like me, you feel like saying, I've got a better idea. Let's try to solve a problem and save the big picture for the cocktail hour. Why don't we first solve the problems dividing Durham and Duke, North Carolina, this country, and the church? Why don't we work on a solution for the racial divisions in our country? Why don't we try to form a strategy for overcoming the scourge of white supremacy? Let's address the distrust that exists among Jews, Christians, and Muslims in America. Or how about the problem of privilege versus the underprivileged, which exists in every realm of life, including higher education? Or I know, let's help the Methodists bridge the gap between the unity of the church and justice in the church for all people. Don't you see, we have so many things on the table before us. We don't need a globe. We need a road map. And as my imagined rant goes on, I notice a fellow named Paul sitting quietly in the corner, taking it all in. 
Finally, when he speaks, everybody listens. He says, you're right. These are terrible problems, and they must be solved. But I'm wondering why you always begin at the wrong end of every issue. Have you ever thought of beginning with the answer rather than the question? What if we followed Paul's lead and started with the answer? What if we began with the embrace rather than the exclusion? What if our thesis sentence was not, you are different, but we are baptized? What if the thesis sentence was not, you are somehow, how can I say this politely, substandard, but instead, we are all made in the image of God? Instead of, you and your ideas are too old, new creation. The Paul we meet in 2 Corinthians is the pastor of a theologically, socially, economically, and racially divided congregation, otherwise perfect. He also had staff problems. And worst of all, and this was the unkindest cut of all, one shudders even to say it, there was a whispering campaign going through the congregation to the effect that our pastor is, is not a very good preacher. That's just how ugly things had gotten in First Church Corinth. But in the midst of the kind of conflicts that would absolutely unhinge a normal person, Paul has this uncanny ability, this maddening ability always to see the big picture. And so to the fractured and fragmented Corinthians, he says, look, if anyone is in Christ, and I assume that's all of us, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The Greek text is even more explosive. It says, if there is anyone in Christ, new creation. And to the Galatians, who were just as deeply divided as the Corinthians, we hear him once again beginning with the answer in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And then it's on to Colossae, another troubled congregation, torn between the ancient world's version of new world religions, new age religions, and the cross of Christ. To them, Paul says, in the grandest possible way, in him, all things hold together. But you have every right to ask, what good is the big picture? When as everybody knows, the devil is in the details. There was another big picture man. His name was Martin Luther King. He was fond of saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Now that's a high altitude observation, a big picture if ever I heard one. But King was trying to create an alignment between the suffering and the campaigns and the struggles that so many had endured 
on behalf of justice with something bigger than himself, bigger than his organization. King was able to say this highfalutin thing about the moral arc of the universe, not because he was an astronomer, but because he was a theologian and believed in God. Paul might have put it this way, the arc of God's cosmos is long, curving this way and that, but it bends toward reconciliation. Which means that whenever you stand up for what is right, whenever you stand up for justice and for those who are being put down, persecuted or killed, you are flowing with the designs and the desires of God and not against them. Whenever you are outraged by sins committed against the cosmos, by 88 pounds of plastic found in the belly of a beached whale, by the horror and the outrage and the obscenity of starvation on a green planet, by the litter on the roads and the junk in outer space, your anger follows the divine curve. It's as if, as Paul says in another place in Romans, the whole cosmos is having a difficult labor, and we along with it. There is a big picture in human relationships as well. And here it gets pretty complicated. For reconciliation is a two-step process. First comes forgiveness, then reconciliation. We might take as a case study the prodigal son, the parable of which we just heard read. The prodigal is down on his luck. He thinks he has to really come up, to come up with a really great speech in order to win the old man over. And of course, what do you do when you're trying to make a great speech? You rehearse. So we find him in the pigsty, practicing his speech. Father, or maybe dad? No, I don't think that's right. Father, I, I have made some unwise decision. No, that's not strong enough. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and blah, blah, it doesn't matter. Because when he gets home, his father has him in a bear hug before he can get a word out of his mouth. He thought he was still under the, the misapprehension that you have to make a really great speech to get yourself reconciled to God. But in fact, when he came home, he was not reinstated as a son because he had never been uninstated. He had never been outside the orbit of his father's love. And of course, the older son in the story cannot forgive, cannot reconcile with his brother, and because he cannot be reconciled with his brother, he turns his back on his father. And the music and the joy, the warmth and love of the father's house 
Despite the joy surrounding the prodigal's return, the second half ends on a decided downbeat. Some years ago, and that's a preacher expression for 50 years ago, I participated in a mediation between a teenage son and his father. It was a long time ago, and a lot of the details are rather hazy to me, but not everything. As I remembered, the boy was rebellious. The father was a Marine, not a hopeful set of circumstances. The mediator said, unwisely, I think, why don't each of you pull your chairs up close together and look at one another in the face and tell each other what you want from one another? What do you want from one another? The boy began and he had a long list. It included a car and a better sound system, which I think he called a stereo. No hassles, no restrictions, you can imagine he wanted everything but an airplane and $1,000 in unmarked bills. And then it was the father's turn. I braced myself for what was sure to come. But instead, the room got very quiet. And the man said, I want him to be my son. He did not say it possessively but wistfully. That he could say it at all was only because the boy had never ceased to be his son. I don't know how the rest of their story turned out, but I do remember this, and this is the part I really can't forget, that at that moment, it felt like something new had been created some new way of dealing with the future had made an appearance. But sometimes reconciliation with another person or another community is impossible. The pain has been too great. Life has moved on, circumstances have changed, perhaps one of the parties has died. You can still do the first step you can forgive at a distance. You can forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven. You can love someone who will not love you back. You can open your arms even when there is no one to be enfolded in them. It's the worst kind of emptiness because you feel somehow you have failed to achieve the divine ideal of reconciliation. Just then Jesus stands in for the missing one. Jesus says, you can't be reconciled to this person or this community. I understand they are dead to you. I stand in for them. For now, for now, reconcile with me. 
And by the way, this is where the Lenten season is carrying us. It's not only deny yourself, but open yourself to a new reality. The new creation in personal relationships has a beauty all its own. I can't help but think of the story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. It's really the saga of Jacob and Esau occupying many chapters. Jacob, you remember, cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance, out of his birthright, and ruined his life. And you may also remember that Esau promised to kill his brother Jacob, which explains why they're living so far apart. Now fast forward 20 years and many chapters. The good news is Esau is at long last coming home. The bad news is he's bringing 400 men with him. It's, it's high noon in the book of Genesis. And as they walk toward one another, they suddenly, without any warning, fall into one another's arms, rolling around, kissing each other, hugging. The Hebrew text says Esau kissed him, which was so unpalatable to a later scribe that he changed it to he bit him. But no, he kissed him. And Esau forgives his brother and refuses all the compensations that Jacob kindly offers. And Jacob replies, your face is like the face of God to me. Your face is like the face of God to me. That's not hard to say to a new baby with fat little cheeks, your face, or to your lover, no matter what your age. But try saying it to someone who has been your enemy. And then you realize that you need something much larger than your own capacity for goodwill. You need nothing less than the miracle of God's reconciling love. In Christ, God does all this for us. In Christ, God answers humanity's most desperate plea, so plaintively expressed by the prophet Isaiah, oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, dare we say, rend the cosmos, and come down. In Christ, God has come down and now is no longer looking at us from such a distance, but sees us now up close and personally. What does he see when he looks at us? Is it a pale blue dot? Is it a little smudge on an otherwise perfect creation? He sees us as his children in his child Christ. This Lent, take him in. Walk with him a bit. Stand very close to him, so close that you are in him. And then say to a friend or an enemy, if you dare, your face is like the face of God to me. Amen.